You're listening to the You Mentor Talk Show, where we invite a panel of experts each week to hear about their incredible journey and career paths. Today, we're talking to Farwa Bayat and Ali Kaki. Farwa is a safety, health, and environmental lead at Unilever, who protects people's well-being while going green. Ali is a hematology-oncology fellow training to beat cancer one patient at a time. This week's show is brought to you by MindTech. I'm Fatima Al-Sayed, your talk show host. Make sure to tune in every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And remember, if you have any questions for the panelists, you can always leave them in the comment section on our YouTube channel. Farwa, how are you today? Hi, Sister Fatima. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Now, you have an interesting mix in your career because you are protecting people while still protecting the environment. Can you tell us how you do that? Sure. So it's uh, it's a little bit all over the place when it comes to safety, health, and environmental. Mm-hmm. It covers a lot of different aspects of different businesses. So the first part of it is safety. Um, people safety is what keeps a sustainable business going, regardless of where, what kind of business or what kind of company it is. So our job is to make sure that the office environment is safe and we teach people how to keep safe um, in their offices, uh, outside of their offices, so that we're not, um, that we make sure that people go home as safely as they come into the offices daily. But on top of that, we also work on our sustainability strategy to make sure that the business that we are running is not harming the environment. And so the products that we put out, the, you know, the things that we, that we create are, um, are, are, are not having a hard impact on the environment. So two different sides of the spectrum. So people sustainability while also mm-hmm. environmental sustainability. And what's the company you work for? So I work for Unilever. Mm-hmm. We're um, a global uh, consumer product goods company. So a lot of the brand names that you guys might know are things like Dove Soap, um, Axe Body Spray, um, Briar's Ice Cream, uh, and we're global. So there's different brands across the different countries. And then what do, what do you do within the company? So my role is the safety, health, and environmental lead. Mm-hmm. Um, and I work in the North America region. And so um, my role is a cluster role. So I, I don't mm-hmm. necessarily just have oversight over one site. But we have 15 manufacturing sites that I support as well as... Um, I want to say 16 or 15 non-manufacturing offices. And so when it comes to my role, uh, I support all of these sites in putting safety programs in place. I work on each site's individual sustainability strategy and, you know, working on making sure that the 10,000 people that we cover in North America go home as safely as they came in every day. And do you have to put together a plan before you go into each one of these sites? So we have an overall North America strategy and a plan. Mm -hmm. um, And then we kind of make them to the point where they can be plug and play. So even though we make brands across, you know, they're they're different things that are being made. um, These plans kind of are plug and play for factories in general or for offices in general. And we try to standardize it across the, the cluster. And what types of things are you looking for in terms of safety and health? So I think uh, to break it up, it's um, non-manufacturing, which is our offices, and manufacturing have two completely different types of safety that they need to be focused on. Mm -hmm. So, of course, in the manufacturing environment, a factory, 
there's a lot more hazards. There's big machinery. There's, um, uh, there's, there, there's food, there's personal care products, things that are being made. And so the hazards when it comes to those are a lot higher. And so the things that we look for are machinery guarding. Um, and we have a specific set of safety rules that are basically you follow these rules, you're likely not to get hurt. Um, and we take these very seriously. They're the number one priority. They're the number one thing that everybody is told going into a manufacturing site. Mm -hmm. So when we worry about our policies and plans for a manufacturing site, um, those are the kind of things we look for. So machinery guarding, um, what ways we can take the hazards of these big machinery and reduce them. And then when it comes to the office setting, um, of course, it's a lot less of a high hazard environment but people still are getting hurt on a daily basis in these offices. Mm -hmm. And a lot of more of what we focus on in an office setting is people's behaviors and a culture. Mm. And how do you, because uh, it's hard to, to really dictate people's behavior. How do you go about that? Right. So <laughs> uh, we do look at trends. We look at, you know, um, we try to build the culture with people. So we start out from with the top down approach. So when leadership cares about something, their teams follow their lead. So we try to start it from the top. So when it comes to our president, our, our VPs, our directors, we start with them and they know that when a new person starts on their team or when things happen on their team, they're directly responsible. Mm -hmm. So in the site that I sit at, there's 1,600 people and I can't be directly focused on everything that they do on a daily. And so when their leadership is focusing on what they're doing when it comes to safety and they incorporate it into all aspects of their business, um, then we're able to work on people's behaviors and, you know, get them into the mindset that this is a place that I need to be safe. I need to follow these safety rules, not just for the sake of the company, mm -hmm. but for my own well-being. Yeah. What do you do day to day? Oh, <laughs> so day to day, um, given that environmental health and safety covers so many different things, um, the one thing that I really enjoy about this is that you're, you know, there's not necessarily a given thing that you'll be doing on a daily basis. So some days I will be focusing on safety. Some days I focus more on the sustainability side. Some days I'm focusing on security. Um, and then health is more of the campaigns that we put in. So on a daily basis, a lot of it is, you know, looking at trends, looking at our policies, procedures. Um, sometimes it is a little bit of fighting fires, um, both literally and uh, figuratively. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that is part of the EHS role where mm -hmm. when we because we have so many sites, you know, sometimes we get calls in early in the morning, late at night uh, of injuries that have happened across the factory. And we need to try and you know, look at the best way to one, make sure that the person is taken care of, mm -hmm. whether they need medical treatment, we need to direct their care. But also, if they are hurt, and something did hurt them in the workplace, then we need to make sure that we are uh, fixing that, um, fixing that so that they um, uh, so that they are, um, sorry, we fix that so that nobody else gets hurt from whatever hurt them. Um, mm -hmm. so fighting fires like that. And then sometimes because we, we do have these factories and a lot of them ha have similar machinery, mm -hmm. um, 
when we do have an incident or a fire or, you know, something goes wrong, we work on sharing those um, horizontally expanding those lessons and, um, and just kind of getting that message across. So saying this happened here, we want to prevent this across our other sites. Um, and then on a daily, whether I'm working on sustainability numbers and seeing what our environmental um, KPIs are. So things like our energy usage, our waste usage, mm -hmm. our water usage and um, CO2, and then working on seeing the pro what projects we have implemented, seeing how far they are along. Um, and then seeing how much of a difference it's already made since we've started these projects. So it's a little bit of project management in there as well. Have you ever gotten a phone call in the middle of the night where you're like, oh my God, what do I do? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, <laughs> so uh, I guess just to give you an example, um, I used to work at one of our factories within the same company. And in a manufacturing environment, these businesses are run 24 seven. And so even though as a supervisor or leader, you don't work the, you know, 24 seven, you have to mm -hmm. switch up your shifts. And so at one time, um, it may have been 12am. And I got a call while I was at home. And they said, this person is hurt, what do we do? And y you need to be able to think quickly, you need to be able to react quickly on your feet. Um, when, when people get hurt, you have to think quickly and make sure that they're getting taken care of. Mm -hmm. um, so I remember it was like 12 a.m. and I'm rushing back to the office. This person's going to the hospital. Um, luckily, she was okay. Um, but I stayed with her until she was checked out. I remember leaving there at 5 a.m. That person went home. She was safe. Um, she was hurt. She had hurt her hand, but it could have been a lot worse had we not had her checked out immediately. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just a lot of thinking quickly and reacting quickly. Um, and, you know, even if that does mean having to get up and go to work at 12 a.m. In the end, you're, you're helping someone. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, as a leader in the company or when you're an EHS person, you know, your mindset is protecting the business, but also protecting the people that are running that business. And mm -hmm. so um, those people that are, you know, these are your colleagues, the people that you work with on a daily basis, you end up spending more time with them than you do at home. And, um, you know, being able to protect them and make sure that they're okay is rewarding. Mm -hmm. So what got you into this? Um, I guess I kind of fell into the safety side of things. Um, but my background is in environmental studies, and I've always had a passion for sustainability and wanting to do something on that front. Mm -hmm. um, I come from three generations of geologists. So um, I always knew I wanted to do something with the environment, but it wasn't necessarily geology. Mm -hmm. um, it was like your legacy. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Um, I, I know I did veer off the course a little bit, but environmental yeah. is still what I love. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's what I did in college. And then after college, um, I started out with a temp role in environmental health and safety. And while I did have the background in environmental and environmental policy, I was able to learn the occupational safety and the health side of it and find that it's just as rewarding to take care of people and make sure that they're okay as mm -hmm. much as it is trying to work and fix the environment or, you know, at least prevent the, the business that I work for from harming the environment. 
And did you like, did you ever imagine that you'd be doing the job that you're doing today? Or were you just interested in environmental studies? So no, I would have not imagined that I would be doing the role that I do now. Mm -hmm. um, although I am very grateful to have kind of fallen into it. Um, I didn't know environmental health and safety was an actual thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's not talked about as much as widespread as you know, the, the bigger career options and coming from our background, um, <laughs> the main career options were engineer, doctor, lawyer. Um, and I, you know, those are all amazing careers. It, it just necessar not necessarily where my, um, where my passion lied mm -hmm. in. Um, and so I knew I wouldn't be something along those lines, but I, I you know, I'm grateful to have fallen into something where, um, I still am doing what my passion is uh, in with the environmental and sustainability side of things. Um, and I've and I've learned to love another aspect of that um, and the responsibility that comes with it. Mm -hmm. What's the most difficult part of your job? Oh, um, I think it's really being able to juggle so many things all at once. Mm -hmm. So you know, there's a lot of multitasking that going that goes on. Um, you know, when people get hurt, I take all of those incidents very seriously. Or if mm -hmm. something happens, and we have a spill at one of our sites, and um, it adversely affects the environment, I take every single one of those. Um, I feel very directly responsible and personal mm -hmm. for them. So I think the hardest part is just, you know, keep on keeping going, even after you've had to fight 10 different fires, um, 10 different fires in, in, a, in a day or in a week. So I think it, it does get a little bit draining and it, it gets a little bit tough to keep on going and keep positive. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, I think you just need to keep reminding yourself that, you know, all of these people that are going home, you know, even if one person does get hurt, it is too many, but that's one out of 10,000 at the end yeah. of the day. And how do you implement? Um, so once someone is hurt and you have to create a whole new, how do you implement it to go to every single site that you have? So um, w what we first do is when somebody gets hurt, we have to mm -hmm. fully investigate what happened, how it happened, was it a behavior? Was it a condition that caused them to get hurt? And this is regardless of if it's an office or if it's a factory, we investigate everything thoroughly. And then, you know, we make sure and I think this goes for anywhere that you work in environmental health and safety, it needs to be mm -hmm. fully investigated so you can understand why it's happened. And then, you know, once you've come to a root cause, you take that root cause and assign actions to what, you know, what caused that person to get hurt, whether it was bad behaviors, and we need to put out a campaign on, you know, this is what happens when, you know, you don't think about safety, or if it was something that went wrong with the machinery, and, mm -hmm. you know, we, we, we found the root cause of that machine, and why it had malfunctioned, we take that check across all of our sites to see if they have the same type of machinery, um, the same type of progress or, or work that's being done. And we take it from there mm -hmm. and um, cascade it to every one of the leads there. So okay. aside from just where, you know, um, me working um, at the corporate level, mm -hmm. uh, we have one individual who is in safety, health and environmental at each of our sites as well. Okay. 
Have you always been interested in environment? So ever since high school or was there something different? So, yeah, so I've always been interested in environment. I just didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do with it. I okay. didn't know what my career options were. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess the, the first thing that really piqued my interest was back in high school. Um, and it had started out actually in fashion design class and working on an eco-friendly fashion design line. And that's when I realized my passion for sustainability and environmental friendly work. Mm, that's cool. Yeah, it it, um, it definitely piqued my interest at that time. And, you know, like I said, I would have never imagined to work in or that that occupational health and safety was an actual thing. Um, but I'm very glad that I did stumble upon mm-hmm. it and that I've made it my career. So for people who are trying to get into um, environmental studies or a career similar to yours, what other career paths are there or what things um, were you not aware of that you wish you would have known about? So um, as you know, as I came into my final year of doing my environmental studies degree and looking at all of my career options, Mm -hmm. when it comes to environmental, there's so many different paths that you can take. You can take the regulatory side and work for a government agency, things like EPA and OSHA, where they, you know, they they write the policies for clean the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. Mm-hmm. So there's the government side of things. They can work in um, they can work for nonprofits. There's a lot of nonprofits that are working on sustainability and improving, you know, the, the way that we we live on this planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's lots of nonprofit work. There's government agencies. There's a lot of private corporations that need people to work on the regulatory side of things. Um, and this is just gearing more towards the environmental side, not necessarily yeah. the safety. But there's so many different career paths, whether you go into just sustainability or you mm-hmm. go into environmental and sustainability. So sustainability ends up being more in the communication side and talking about what, you know, what programs and plans are in place for sustainability. Mm -hmm. Um, But then the environmental side is actually implementing those procedures, implementing those plans, those projects to reduce the the environmental footprint. Mm -hmm. So, you know, lots of different corporations are going into getting into sustainability. So lots of different career options are opening up on that spectrum. Um, are there a lot of internships available? Yes. Yeah, so I think any company, even like a lot of the time, the bigger ones, but any company is always looking for uh, whether it's EHS, so environmental health and safety, or mm-hmm. it's just the environmental or sustainability. A lot of things are opening up. So internships, co-ops, um, temporals. I think, you know, whoever's looking into starting in the environmental um, career path, Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of different options that open up every day for them. Where does your passion for the environment come from? So my, I guess to re- relay it back to um, religion, the reason mm-hmm. I love the environment is because I believe that we've been so generously granted this earth and everything on it for our use by Allah. And I feel that we do not 
um, we take it for granted and the way Mm -hmm. that we treat this earth, the way that we treat everything that comes on it is wrong. And um, it's just a way to, you know, working on the environmental side of things. I feel like it's just one thing that I can do to give back and make sure Mm -hmm. that we're preserving this beautiful gift of this earth that we've been giving. And is it tough to be, because your role is a very big and visible role um, in the company. So is it tough to lead, to be the lead of the sites? So I guess, you know, I, it's already an obstacle being a woman in the mm-hmm. workforce. Um, and then on top of that, being a Muslim hijabi woman in mm-hmm. the workforce, um, and then being in such a visible role, I find it to be it does get difficult. And there's days where, you know, the the people who have led this career path and the people that are in this career path, a lot of the times are the older American males. Mm -hmm. And so being a younger woman who is in this career path, um, sometimes I'm not given the, uh, I guess it's not necessarily given the the credit that's due to the, all of the work that, you know, we work so hard for. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we keep push it, pushing at it every day and hopefully, the, you know, these stigmas will change. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we just have to remember not to let, you know, what the old ways of the workforce uh, were to, you know, to hold, yeah. to hold it over us as they are now. And times are changing now. It's not we're not always going to be living in that time oh for sure and I think they've already changed a lot which has which has really helped me um, Mm -hmm. get to where I am right now and you know we can only continue to work hard and show that we're just as you know just as value added if not even more yeah so what's the most valuable experience you've gotten over your career the most valuable experience, I think that um, just tying it back to, you know, overall in environmental health and safety, the most valuable experience I got was working in a manufacturing environment. Mm-hmm. While it was high stress, you know, lots going on, um, uh, working in an area where, you know, in factory environments, it's a lot of blue collar and white collar. Um, so learning how to work with, you know, factories, uh, factory people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, and it's long hours. And I think that was the most beneficial experience I've had because one, I have such an appreciation for, you know, where all of our products come from, how they're all made, but also the people that do these, these jobs, you know, there's a million and one things that go into making these products. And I've learned so much on the engineering side, on the regulatory side and how much goes into it. And while it was difficult, Um, I think that that experience has really allowed me to learn and thrive in the EHS role, um, mainly because, you know, the ins and outs of it. And that experience, Mm -hmm. I don't think that you can get from anywhere else outside of the manufacturing facility when it comes to EHS. Okay. And what's the hardest thing you've been called to overlook and take care of? Um, So... Well, I had just started with the company and they actually asked me to um, close a factory that we had in uh, in our Georgia, uh, in, in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was the hardest thing. So being right out of college, um, I was asked to go close this factory where 250 people were working. 
I had to tell all of these people that, you know, they had lost their jobs, that we were going wow. to move production to somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to work with the government agencies to close out and, you know, make sure that we're, we're compliant and, you know, working with what we're doing with ammonia and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so while it was difficult, I think that that experience is going to help me throughout my career, regardless of where I go, because I learned so much and mm-hmm. all of the odds and ends of the, the business from that. Yeah. And does it get hard to sort of not having those set hours? Is it hard to balance your own personal life? So while it does get difficult to have a good work-life balance, given that we're necessarily on call, um, you know, 24-7, and you're Mm -hmm. not necessarily going to be called at all times of the night or during the weekends, but just knowing that that, you know, is is an option, um, Mm -hmm. it does get tough. But I think that it's definitely worth, you know, it's, I don't find it to be too difficult to be able to do what I need to do for my personal life but also be able to thrive in my career. Um, And I think that one, the company that I work for um, has allowed me to do that. But also I think that my work ethic in general has allowed me to, to balance both. Mm. And if someone is interested in the environmental or occupational safety, what advice would you give them? Um, One, uh, I guess I would say, you know, just, work hard at it and Mm -hmm. it will be rewarding but two, you know take those there's lots of internships keep your mind open for working in a manufacturing site I know that a lot of people that coming that are coming into um, the career workforce are are coming into the workforce are reluctant to do these manufacturing roles Um, but once they've done it they're going to learn so much so whether it's occupational safety or it's environmental. So, you know, you don't necessarily have to go the the governmental route. You don't necessarily have to work for a nonprofit if that's not what you want to do. Mm-hmm. But there's so many options out there and there's so many different things that you can do. Um, so one is to keep your options open. Um, you know, look in both corporate and manufacturing settings when it comes to both environmental and safety. Um, and I think, you know, the, the most important thing is just to, to work hard at it you know, it does get difficult some days, it does get it, it's a lot of hours. Um, but it, it is very rewarding uh, at mm-hmm. the end of the day. So, you know, yeah. What's the most exciting part of doing your job? What makes you the happiest? Um, the happiest is actually seeing the results, right? So mm-hmm. like I mentioned before, I've got 10,000 people that I ne- that I overlook uh, on a daily basis. And so when I send 10,000 people home every day, um, safely, or as mm-hmm. safely as they came in every day, um, that's the most rewarding thing. Or, you know, when I'm pulling my environmental numbers, when I'm looking at my electricity usage, or um, my natural gas usage across North America, and seeing that the projects that we put in are actually making a difference. Um, you know, that it's not all for nothing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, even though you have to fight those fires, being able to see the results of all of the work that you put in is really awesome. Yeah. And these are huge companies too. It's not like they're just a couple of (laughs) things. So you are making a huge difference. Right. Right. And I think that's the most exciting thing about it. (laughs) Yeah. And do you have anything else, uh, you would like to, anything? last piece of advice you'd like to give to the future generation who is Um, looking to go into your career? So 
I guess it's just uh, one, even if you're not necessarily looking into environmental health and safety, or maybe you are, it, it is a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's rewarding. It's up and coming, do. but it's real. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So it's a real thing. You don't necessarily have to go to the the career path that, you know, is lined out for you or that people say are, you know, there's three career paths that you can choose from. There's mm-hmm. a lot of different ways to be successful and still enjoy and love what you do. Um, and so regardless of if that's environmental health and safety or whatever else it is that you have a passion for, just go for it. Um, and, and that's really it, right? Work hard at it. Yeah. Um, you know, all of us are, it, it's a difficult time to live it, you know, in this generation mm-hmm. um, and being this workforce, but you just got to keep pushing forward and, you know, have the desire to keep, you know, to keep at it. Is there a specific um, degree that you have to have in order to be in these positions? So I have an environmental studies degree, um, but you can actually, it's a very, you can have very broad degrees here. So whether mm-hmm. you're an engineering uh, or you have an occupational safety degree, mm-hmm. um, environmental degree, um, there's people across all, you know, that have so many different degrees that I know that are in occupational health and safety. So you don't necessarily need to narrow, narrow yourself into one degree and, you know, not be able to do a EHS. Mm-hmm. So you don't necessarily need one degree if that is your career path and you know that that's what you want to do. Um, you can do an OHS degree in college. Okay. okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Farwell, for sharing your interesting career path. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Of course, it was lovely having you. Thank you. Now, before we get to Ellie, just a reminder about the Umojo Soccer Academy session. We currently only have one spot left, or several spots left, actually, in New Jersey. So if you'd like to join, please reach out to us at info at umojaoutreach.org. And if you haven't already, check out the photos on the Umoja Games website by searching umojaoutreach.org slash games and clicking gallery. Ali, how are you today? I'm doing well, very well, thank you. So, you are making all parents proud. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe all parents of my own. My father was an engineer and was hoping I would do that, so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, it's one or the other, right? (laughs) Um, So can you tell us what goes into, your career is very long and it's very heavy. So let's start off with what you are doing right now. Yeah, so uh, right now I'm a hematology-oncology fellow at the University of Washington uh, in the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle, Washington. Um, the This is sort of training after you're done your medical school and residency, and um, it's it's a training to become a specialized physician within the care of cancer patients um, and blood disorders. Uh, the training program is three years and consists of half the time doing clinical training and the other half of the time doing research training with the eventual goal to train myself and my colleagues uh, in my program to be academic uh, physicians who can uh, can research and, and progress the field of cancer while also taking care of patients. Okay, so now when you were applying to get into the medical field, where, where you, is this what you always wanted to do? No, far from. I think that I've had uh, a somewhat of a circuitous uh, road uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, b- back in high school, I think I was always good at the sciences, um, but I I was always more almost 
attracted to the social sciences just because they were a bit more difficult for me. And so uh, when I was applying to college, I thought I was going to be an economics or history major and had aspirations to be a lawyer and to be a politician. Mm -hmm. um, and so I actually went to a, a small liberal arts college in Minnesota called Carl Carleton College. Okay. Um, and yeah, so that's that's where I started. Interesting. And obviously you didn't continue with that. So what drew you to the medical field? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, I, I was a chemistry major in college. Um, and at the time when I finished college, I, I thought I was going to be a scientist. Um, I, I, in, in, in college, I got very attracted and interested in, in organic chemistry and, and making molecules and, and actually learning about the, the, the chemistry of the human body. But I, you know, we used to we used to joke in my college that people who were good at science became PhDs, and people who were bad at science or didn't know what they wanted to do, they became doctors. And so I was like, oh, I think I'm good at science, so I should I should become a scientist. Um, mm -hmm. But it was so I actually took a job. I was at the same time I was I was insecure about committing myself to a PhD program that was going to be you know a five or six year commitment. Um, and so I I took a job actually, which I thought was going to be a, a great first job out of college. I thought it was actually what I called my dream job at the time. Where I was working at a company called Gilead Sciences in the Bay Area in, in California, um, where I was doing enzyme chemistry and, and working on sort of looking at how molecules are made and, and how they mm -hmm. work on, on enzymes to treat HIV. Um, and it was during that time at that company where I sort of got exposure to other physicians at the company, um, some of whom were scientists but also had mm -hmm. an MD, as well as some some um, friends I met socially in the, in, in California. Who are physicians, yeah. and that's and that's when I sort of first seriously considered the field of medicine. Okay, and like you said, you've always been interested in sciences and all of that. So you worked for ten years at a company. No, so what? I worked. I I worked for just one, two years at the at the company. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. And, and then and then and then I and that, so I finished. I left this that. This was company. over ten years ago. Over ten years ago. Okay. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All so right. I was working at that company. I finished college in mm -hmm. two thousand seven, and started that job in, in, at that time, and then worked at mm -hmm. that company until two thousand nine. Um, so 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 started that company ten years ago. And, yeah. 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 Okay. And so <laughs> let's start with your med school um, career because this is a whole career within itself. Um, what did you? How did you get in? Yeah, you so, you know, so, so, you know, medical school, you know, is, is probably the, the, the hardest part about medical school is the, the getting in and then the early mm -hmm. tests in, early in medical school. And so for me, you know, um, it, I, I was a chemistry major, but, you know, because I wasn't thinking about going into medicine, I actually didn't do all the prerequisites um, to, to actually uh, for medical school. And I actually had taken oh, okay. classes in community college while I was working um, to make sure I had all the, the act that uh, the classes I needed. That's um, interesting because a lot of people think that you have to take, you have to be a bio major, you have to be a specific uh, major in university or college to apply for med school. Exactly, and I think I think there's even med schools now that uh, you know I used to work in the admission, admissions committee at my, in my medical school, and they, we at our medical school we would be attracted to people who are not actually science majors, who are actually mm -hmm. an English major or a social science major. And and really the the big thing is that there's just a certain number of courses you have to take um, to actually uh, um, meet the pre prerequisites for medical school, but the actual major does not matter. Okay, okay. So after you picked up a couple classes, you picked went up a couple into... classes, and then mm -hmm. I had to study for the MCAT, which is actually a, another huge commitment because that's probably the one, one of the most challenging exams you take. Um, mm -hmm. 
and, and that and it's crucial to getting into medical school. And so I, I you know, I did my MCAT. I, I took the different classes I needed to take. And then I applied to medical school, which is in in and of itself a, a big process as well. Um, the application mm -hmm. is 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 sort of long, and and um, the the whole process between the application, then they do secondary applications, and then and then you do an interview. Uh, it feels like a almost like a, another job that in and of itself. So if you were doing this the conventional conventional way, which year of uh, college would you have gone into uh, or applied? Yeah, so if you were if you were going to go straight through from college, um, you would sort of uh, take your MCAT um, I, during your your junior year. Okay. Uh, spring of your junior year, maybe maybe at the latest. Um, actually, yeah, you have to, the latest would be the spring of your junior year because you'd be applying in the the fall the summer of your senior year. The applications mm -hmm. open on June first or sometime in, in early June or July. Um, so that's when you would you'd be ap applying. So you apply basically the year before you'd want to enter into medical school. Okay, and uh, what comes after that? So um, once once you get uh, enrolled into you get accepted and enroll into a medical school, um, the, the the medical school is designed so the first two years of school are uh, your preclinical years, and some schools are changing now, making it a year and a half. But in general, like that that time, you're sort of in the classroom, um, you know, in the learning intensely everything you need to know about the human body, mm -hmm. um, as well as sort of disease. And then at the end of that two-year period of time, you take your step one board exam, which is the you know the first um, of a series of board exams, and probably the most the second most important exam I say uh, in the entire medical training after the MCAT, um, because it, it sort of weighs heavily into where your options are for postgraduate training. Okay, and <laughs> it's, it sounds like a very grueling process. Um, after this, you start your training. Yeah. So, um, then, so then, after 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 your your step one board exam, you do your third yeah. and fourth year of medical school. Okay. And, and during that time, you're you, you're in the in the hospital or in the clinics, actually for the first time seeing patients and and, mm -hmm. and doing what you thought you were doing. You 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 were setting out to do. Mm -hmm. So when did you start med school? So I started medical school in two thousand nine. Mm -hmm. Um. And so, yeah, so I did my preclinical years and I started doing clinical rotations in 2011 mm -hmm. um, and, and then graduated from medical school in 2013. Okay. And I'm still in training in 2018. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're almost there. <laughs> almost there, yeah, yeah yes. Yeah. Um, was it hard choosing what you wanted to specialize in? I, I've always had trouble making decisions about my career. And so I, I, <laughs> similarly, in the same way that I thought I was going to be a politician someday or a chemist, uh, mm -hmm. When I had to decide on a field, so the way the third year of medical school is 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 arranged, uh, there's core rotations that you do, and sort of the the core sort of fields within medicine. So that's psychiatry, OBGYN, internal medicine or adult medicine, pediatrics, family medicine, and, and surgery. Okay. Um, and and then during your fourth year, you get to tailor your your sort of rotations a little bit to sort of to focus more on on the field that you want to apply to while you're applying to your residency or your postgraduate training. When I finished my third year, I always thought I was going to be a, a, a internal medicine physician, someone who, who thinks more about treating people, patients with medicine as opposed to surgery. But I actually really enjoyed my surgical rotations in my third year and thought very hard about whether I wanted to be a surgeon or not. Yeah. Um, but then eventually, um, during my fourth year, decided that I, I wanted to do internal medicine, so I applied to that residency program. So what made you choose that over surgery? Yeah, I think, I think that... Um, 
for me, I was really drawn uh, uh, to the the idea of surgery more than I think the practice of surgery. And what I okay. mean by that is that I'm not I've never been someone who um, has prided has has been good with my hands necessarily or or thought that that's what I wanted to do. And that's why mm-hmm. I, I never thought about it seriously before. When you're doing surgical rotations, working with you know, expert surgeons, and you 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 know you get to see that the the way the impact you can make on people's lives uh, with with the surgery you know for for whatever purpose you you just it's it's really an attractive career path mm-hmm. um, but um, for being further removed from that rotation and with with some deeper reflection I realized that that would not be something that would be a, a good fit for me and I think you're from the beginning you've been really interested in research so that's where that might stem from yes yeah. Um, I, and especially in research and pharmaceuticals. And so I think that, yeah. and, that and that's sort of eventually what, what led me to an interest in cancer as well. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a bit about what what it is you're doing now? Like what kind of work do you do? Yeah, so I'm uh, finishing up my the 18-month period of my time where I'm doing rotation. So, so mm-hmm. the way what I do right now is that each calendar month, I'm at a different site. We have three or four different sites that are as part of our institution where I'm seeing patients you know, um, either in the hospital for new consultations for either um, disorders of their blood um, mm-hmm. or or new new diagnoses or complications of of, of a diagnosis of cancer, um, and then and then so or or some months like this month right now I'm actually in the clinics I'm seeing patients um, through you know uh, in different clinics with different uh, supervising physicians um, you know every half day. And so get get to see patients uh, with various disorders. Right now, I'm doing GI and GU, or gastrointestinal and genitourinary cancers. So I'm seeing mm-hmm. patients who have prostate cancer, bladder cancer, colon cancer, pancreas cancer, and and um, some are some patients are new, some patients are follow up, and sort of checking on them, coming up with plans for their chemotherapy or for the treatment plans more generally. Um, starting in January, I'll be starting my the research component of my uh, my training. And, and so that's when I, as as a fellow, you have the opportunity of doing either lab-based research or clinical research. And I've, um, whereas my when I first got into all this stuff, I thought I was going to be a lab lab-based scientist. The more and more I've done clinical medicine, I've I've been drawn more and more to clinical research. And so my plans are to be uh, doing clinical epidemiology research as well as maybe doing some clinical trial design and and um, and, um, and, and, and and trying to enroll patients in clinical trials. Is it hard, um, like being in that role? Um, I think that in, in I'm not sure exactly what you're asking as being hard, but I think that like is it hard uh, being in the role of seeing people who are you oh, know at the end of their life, um, yeah. people who let's say you could have the means to help, but they're not. <laughs> maybe their lifetime yeah. isn't. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, you know, I actually really enjoy it. I think that um, it's, it's kind of, it, it, in the entire one of the blessings of the field of medicine is that people will come to you um, and share with, share with you some of the, you know, some of the things that make them most vulnerable, right? And that's, mm-hmm. that's a very powerful um, feeling to be able to, to, to get to meet people at that phase of life. Um, mm-hmm. And and specifically with with sort of terminal diseases like many cancers, um, it it can be very, it can be challenging. But I think that it can also be very rewarding because you can sort of, um, you know, we have medicines that can help some people. Um, so it's nice to see those success stories. And then mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, um, I I think that it's also very refreshing to meet people who have 
that perspective of a life perspective with the di- with a terminal illness because yeah. it, it changes the way that they they live their life and I think that um, I I really enjoy those sort of conversations about you know what what's most important in my life and and how I want to prioritize that. Mm-hmm. There are days you know like I've had a couple of weeks this week where I you know I'm meeting patients who um, who you know have young kids at home or yeah. have severe terminal illnesses that are not easy you know I, I on a couple of days ago I you know I have a 37 year old patient right now who's got a bad bad cancer um, and I spend an hour with him after my at the end of my day just to sit and talk to him because like you know he, he's gonna die shortly here and it, mm-hmm. it's really painful to see that and all I can do is give him my time you know so so sometimes you have to you have your tough you have your success stories and then you, and then you have the, the patients who you know, uh, are, are more challenging, but, but yeah. even, even then there's, there's something you can learn from every one of them. It's quite, and that's, that's mm-hmm. what the most rewarding thing is. But it's like, you have to be on the go all the time. Where do you find the time to just sit and take a moment to pause and talk to these patients? Yeah, I think, I think probably that's the hardest part about, about this is that, you know, um, that the, the, there's always more patients, right? And so mm-hmm. like, um, I think that, you know, I remember in residency, one thing that, that I would all re- always wrestle with is that, you know, there could be a patient I was taking care of in the hospital um, who, you know, may have even been sort of on comfort care in the last, you know, hours or days of his life, and he might die, and I might be called to pronounce his death, and then mm-hmm. I spend a minute doing that or whatever, however much time is required, yeah. and then and then I need to, you know, it might be, it might be 8 a.m. still, and I have another you know, eight hour, nine hour, 10 hours in the hospital where I have to take care of every other patient. And so, so it really takes some time to, to find ways, uh, find support, find some practices, you know, creating, creating ways that you're able to sort of, you know, process that quickly and then move on and try to try to, you know, take care of the other patient that you need to take care of. And that's, Mm -hmm. and I think that's one of the things that's the, the, the most difficult part about being a physician in general is, is not just in that setting, but in, in, in settings in general is that, there's always more patience. And so trying to find that balance of taking care of yourself um, while also doing a good job taking care of your patients. It's a very glorified career too, um, which is, <laughs> you know, it's, it's understandable because it is, it's a, it's a very tough career uh, as well. And people who are just thinking of going into this because let's say their parents are telling them you should be a doctor, what advice do you give them? Yeah, I think, I think that it's, um, it, you know, it's it's a really big commitment, and so I think mm-hmm. that um, I I you know th- through my training, I've met people who um, you know who have who've gone into medicine because they you know because of that glory or because of that that or because of the money. Everyone says, "Oh, you make so much money mm-hmm. as a doctor," and I I I always you know would would push back on them and be like, "If that's really your motivation for doing this, there's way easier ways to get glory and to make money," and mm-hmm. so, and and and. If you're smart enough to get into med school and become a doctor, you can exactly. find other ways. You can find other ways to do so. Yeah. And so, I, so I, I really think that you really have to commit to, you know, the the, the you know the taking care of patients. And I think yeah. that that's the thing. And so, I, you know, my my pathway has been circuitous, but I'm very grateful that I took that time to make sure that I was convinced that I wanted to do this because because mm-hmm. um, it's a very tough career to get into. Yeah, it's a it's a tough career to get into, and it's also a tough career to to Maintain. to do. And I, Exactly, mm-hmm. and I think that um, to to really do the best service for patients, you really have to, you know, really be committed to it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that unfortunately, I think that um, there are many physicians that you know, I've, many of my role models, many of the physicians that I met have that, 
you know, that commitment. But there's a, you know, like I think that there are medicine these days seems to get a, a, a worse and worse rap in some yeah. some certain other communities because you know I don't think that uh, all physicians, though the vast majority that I've met are, are committed to patients. I think I don't think that not every single one is right. Mm-hmm. So, and what's the hardest part of your job? I think I think the hardest part is sort of that is that you know it, it not getting burnt I, out. Yeah, I think I think one of the things I struggled with when I was earlier in my sort of medical training was that you know medicine at the end of the day is a service service job you know and mm-hmm. so I used to I used to joke in medical school in the beginning of my residency uh, I the only thing that dif- differentiates me from someone who works at McDonald's or Costco is that I have like, ten more years of schooling than they do you know <laughs> yeah and and in in some ways in some ways like that's that's true in some ways it's not right but mm-hmm. like I think that like the the big thing I want I I say when I say that is like really like you know, more and more people, there's more and more patients. There's always an extra patient. There's always another patient. And so it's, it's to be able to be a, a, a good and effective physician, I think that you also have to find ways to, to balance that. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, I, so, some physicians do that by making sure that they have some time outside of their work to do other leisure activities or do other yeah. things. For me, I, I, you know, like hopefully as an academic physician, I, you know, I have more of a balance with my research, right. That can mm-hmm. sort of give me a, a more creative outlet to doing to doing something that's academic that's not just patient care. Because patient care after a while is no longer it's not no longer problem solving because it, you know, to be a good physician, to be a good person taking care of patients, a lot of it is you really have to just it it can be pretty rote, right? You have yeah. to know the things and you just have to keep 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 carrying out what you know. So And what's the one thing you wish you would have known before you entered the career? Um or something that, that you had or yeah, I think that um, for me, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I, one of the things I've, I've struggled with is my uncertainty, and and I think the the more I have embraced that uncertainty, mm-hmm. the better that it's been for me. And so I think that like for me, I, I, I but one thing I wish I had um, would have been sort of a strong mentor who who I could sort of align with. You know, I think mm-hmm. that for me, I I didn't actually know that many physicians um, growing up, and so and and. Though you know, like in medical school and residency, I have identified physicians. I've I've struggled to always identify someone who sort of fit my perspective on medicine and fit my sort mm-hmm. of ambition. And so, like trying to, I, I think that if if what I, one thing I would say is that if you identify someone who you relate to and who's giving good advice that sort of aligns with your sort of worldview or your your ambition and aspirations, mm-hmm. don't let that person go because I think that like. For me, I've you know I've met some people along the way who 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 have given me good advice for a period of, of time, but I, you know, like I've 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 also had to sort of um, taste taste a few different waters or, or you know test out a few different waters to make sure I was convinced that that you know the career that I wanted uh, could be fulfilled with with the different yeah. careers that were available to me. And a lot of people think that you have to sort of pause your life to finish med school and become a doctor and then start getting married and having kids and all of that. Um, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't my experience at all. I, mm-hmm. I, I, um, for, uh, um, I got married. Uh, she, I quit my job at the pharmaceutical company I was working at, mm-hmm. uh, got married, and then started medical school on one summer. And so uh, I w- I've been very grateful and very lucky to have uh, a, a partner with me through the whole process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my wife... Um, was was flexible enough to you know move with me to medical school and, and move with me throughout my medical training. I was also very you know fortunate that I had family support 
um, financially that, that can make that feasible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and, 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 you know, we, um, had our first, uh, child, my daughter, Layla, who's, uh, three now, we had her when I was a resident. Um, but again, I couldn't have done that, uh, without, without sort of having a wife who was flexible and accommodating for any of yeah. that. So. Okay. So is it, so being, um, w- like, what does your wife do so that you guys can have that balance? Yeah. Um, so she, you know, she, um, when I was in medical school, she did her master's in accounting and then she, uh, uh became a CPA. Um, so, um, we were both, you know, we were like the, the, uh, classic dink, the double income, no kids, mm-hmm. um, uh, early in our careers. And, and that, you know, that was a, a way for us to both get our, our lives started together. And then since we've had our children, um, she's actually been at home with them, uh, which is, which I'm, you know, grateful for her for, for, uh, being flexible enough mm-hmm. to, to accommodate that. Okay. What are your aspirations moving forward? Um, well, I, I hope that I can uh, find ways to continue to take care of patients effectively mm-hmm. and also um, move, move forward the, the field of cancer. And uh, the particular interest of mine right now is, is genitourinary cancer. I'm interested mm-hmm. in prostate and bladder cancer and, and trying to move those fields forward. There's, there's been some breakthroughs, um, um, but I think that, um, you know, biology and life sciences move slowly. And I think that in general, there's a lot, there's a lot in the media these days about miracles and cures of cancer. And mm-hmm. I think we're far from anything like that. And I think that in, in, it, it's really a, a slow uh, process and a slow evolution and we're making progress, um, but I think it happens slowly. So I hope that I can sort of uh, participate in that sort of progress forward. Hopefully you can. Um, and the work you're working on now, uh, how long do you feel that research will take? Yeah, so I mean, I, this, this summer, this last summer, I, I, uh, I you know, wrote a clinical trial protocol mm-hmm. um, that, uh, for patients with bladder cancer. And um, to give you a sense of, of that, it, the trial protocol we, we wrote is for, you know, to recruit 15 to 17 patients. Mm-hmm. Um, it probably won't be open uh, to, to start recruiting patients until about next summer of 2019. And we'll probably mm-hmm. take another two years to get the patients enrolled and probably another two years after that before we mm-hmm. have any results. And so that's, you know, that's how slow science, you know, clinical, clinical science goes. So it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a really... Because it's people's lives that you have exactly. to be really sure Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when you're testing new medications and actually trying to confirm that they really work, right, you need to sort of, you know, give someone a medication and, and then actually make sure that you have outcomes that you can measure that that are meaningful. You know, there's mm-hmm. oftentimes in science, we can measure things sooner that, that you know, might suggest something or the other. But I, you know, I, I always tell my patients as your cancer doctor, I'm interested in giving people medicines that will either make them feel better or help them live longer. Mm-hmm. And to really prove that, it, it takes a long time. And it takes a, a lot of thought about making sure you design something um, thoughtfully to make sure you can actually confirm that that actually happens. Yeah. And one thing that um, I would feel would be hard, let's say, for me to get into the career would be just thinking of someone dying in the morning and then you have to go to the next shift. Um, how do you how do you deal with a patient's death in that moment? Yeah, you know, one thing that I um, um, implemented into my practice uh, early in my training, uh, which I've, I'm very grateful that I 
I, I did this is that mm -hmm. what you know when as a physician when you're uh, pronouncing someone someone's death you have to do a one minute physical exam where you listen to their heart and lungs and examine them for a full sixty seconds which um, while they're dead while they're dead yeah, yeah. which is actually kind of a very um, uncomfortable thing almost because mm -hmm. it's so you know like especially if you've taken care of that patient before because you look at that patient who was previously alive and you you know I have memories of taking care of that person and now I have to see them in a state where they're no longer you know communicating they're not mm -hmm. no longer breathing right um, and have to examine them and so what I what I would do is that in that minute when you're listening and you don't even hear a, a, a thump you don't even hear a heartbeat um, it feels very quiet and so I, I would spend that time actually reciting Surah Fatiha and reciting uh, th three surah class, uh, mm -hmm. sort of a prayer for that patient that I was just taking care of, and that that reciting those surahs would take me about a minute, mm -hmm. and so it was, a, it was a good sort of measure of my time, but it was also gave me a time to sort of recenter myself, yeah, think about that patient and, and send a prayer for them, mm -hmm. so, and help you deal with what you just witnessed as well. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, because yeah. I I feel like someone would after a while if you, um, or maybe I'm wrong if you don't have faith, maybe it could be. I don't know. Yeah, I think I think even people who don't have faith in in uh, organized sense, can, mm -hmm. it can still you know can still weigh on you. Yeah. And so making sure you find a way to sort of process that. Everyone right? finds their own exactly. way. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And then and then the other thing the other thing I've done sort of which is that uh, not as. <laughs> Not as not as good a story as the as the the, the recitation of a prayer is like mm -hmm. I I you know sometimes you just have to make sure you take care of yourself and for me sometimes I would sort of have to just watch a lot of trashy TV you know when I come home <laughs> right so like you know like because like you just you just want to turn off you know yeah. and, and let yourself you know not have to think about anything and so like I'd or watch you know feel good shows to make make mm -hmm. remind you remind you that most of the world is is a you know. Is is happy stories and not sad stories. So, what's the most accurate um, medical show there is out there today? The, out there, <laughs> you know, I I don't I don't um, the the ones that I've really watched are, are mostly just Scrubs and and now I've been watching a little bit of The Resident, which is actually a pretty mm -hmm. terrible show, not very <laughs> accurate. Um, I I really like Scrubs. I didn't watch any of the ER or Grey's Anatomy, so I really can't comment on any, oh, of, okay. any of those kind of shows. Because yeah. there's a doctor on YouTube who does comment on all of those and it's a huge oh. question now people will just want to know what's the most accurate way yeah i think that they're all i mean they're all glorified right i think that yeah. like you know the thing that especially would always drive me crazy is that um in all those shows people get who get cpr walk out of the hospital and in reality like anyone who gets cpr in the hospital i think the chances of you leaving the hospital is is 50 at best and maybe as, as low as 10 percent, right mm -hmm. so like you actually die and are brought back to life, the chances of you actually having meaningful recovery is not very high. And so, you know, I think that sometimes, and I, and I focus on that one specifically because it, it sort of does a disservice to our, our patients because mm -hmm. when I'm having a conversation with a patient who about, you know, who might be very sick and may not benefit from a, from a CPR and, uh, and sort of that sort of level of aggressive care, um, their image of what that entails is very different than what it actually does. And so, um, so those, those TV shows can can actually make yeah. it more complicated for us to have those kind of conversations. So, if you're interested in the med field because of a TV show, you should go shadow someone instead to yes. see the reality. <laughs> and I think I think in general, if you're interested in medicine, mm -hmm. uh, one thing I did not do much uh, and and thought was kind of silly uh, when I was going through this early early in my career, but I think I would highly recommend is, is making sure you spend a lot of time shadowing and really convincing yourself that you could do what a doctor does. Yeah. And, 
and not just not just what a what a medical student does or what a resident does, but actually what a physician does. Like, you know, if you're a physician in private practice, you're seeing patients, mm-hmm. you know, four to five, sort of eight to nine half days of the week, right? So like, yeah. maybe you have one half day to do other stuff, but like otherwise, you're 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 spending most of your time, you know, seeing patients, you know, mm-hmm. 10, 15 patients each half day. And so you have to be ready to do that. What's the final piece of advice you'd give to people who are looking to become doctors? I think I think uh, doctor or no doctor, I think the, the most important thing I would recommend is is um, is making sure you um, aren't afraid to to explore different career paths and mm-hmm. career career options. I think that um, for me, that's been the most useful thing that I did is taking time between at, at different pivot points to actually you know, test the water and, and, mm-hmm. and see how, how one thing was before committing myself to a career path that I was uncertain if it uh, would make me happy or not. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Ali. Thank you very much. It's, uh, ha- I'm happy to talk to you. To you. It was a pleasure having you. Uh, before we end the show for today, we actually have one question from the audience for Farwa. So Farwa, if you're still on the line. Yep. Hi. Um, have you ever been threatened by any stakeholders to lie or bend the rules to save costs? Oh, um, <laughs> so no, never threatened or anything like that. Um, but one of the biggest things that we do need to do is to save costs. And sometimes it gets into a little bit of um uh, an ethical conundrum when mm-hmm. we're trying to push an injury to not be a, you know, a, a recorded injury on the books. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, you always just have to stick true to, you know, stick to your guns. Um, the person is the most important thing. Um, and mm-hmm. so as long as they're, you know, taken care of, it doesn't matter what, um, you know, what other people will say. I wouldn't put my ethics or, you know, anything else on the line uh, just to save my career. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I- I've heard of situations where it's happened. Um, I'll, you know, alhamdulillah, I haven't gotten into that situation um, as of yet. Thank you so much for answering our question. Of course, thank you guys for asking. <laughs> and if anyone has any other questions, feel free to reach out to any of our panelists. Um, you can reach out to them on our online platform at umochaoutreach.org slash unleash the future slash groups, or just visit the Umentor website and hit the link for online platform. Be sure to tune in next Saturday at three for other panels of speakers and more stories. Thank you for listening to our panel today on YouTube Live, and you can always catch up on our previous shows on SoundCloud or on our iTunes podcast.